Welcome to Human Circus. There are many routes by which travelers go, from England or France on their pilgrimages. For many, John Mandeville tells us, the choice was to attempt the journey first to Egypt, and from there proceed to the Holy City, to make the long pilgrimage first, and then the short. They might cross France and Burgundy, passing cities and towns too familiar for Mandeville to think worth mentioning. From there, there were options. Some chose to depart from Genoa, as far north as you can be on Italy's western side. Some passing through Sardinia and Corsica. Others opted for Genoa's longtime rival on the opposite coast, leaving from Venice and sailing the Adriatic. Others went to whatever port they might find an available boat. Some to Naples and some to Brindisi, near the heel of the Italian boot. Some via Sicily where Mandeville mentions a test of fidelity conducted with a poisonous adder that would encircle the trustworthy spouse and bite the adulteress, and where the earth beneath Mount Etna constantly burns, where flames issue forth of many colors. From those colors, the locals were said to prophesize on the quality of the corn harvest, the market, and the weather. Sometimes, pilgrims' journeys took them to the port of Pisa, from which they would sail to the Genoese-owned island of Corfu, and on to the Greek ports of Myrick, Vlore, or Dores, on to Constantinople, Rhodes, and Cyprus, to Jaffa, and then Alexandria, the city where St. Catherine's head was slashed off, where the church's walls were washed white to obscure their Christian images, where St. Mark was martyred and his bones laid to rest, before being snatched up and smuggled to Venice. Or so that city's stories went. From Alexandria, the route went from sea to sand, and these were sands that would have spoken to the pilgrims of biblical doings, of the deserts through which Moses and Aaron led the people from Egypt. The pilgrims could follow in their footsteps, finding the well where Moses provided water when they muttered against him, finding the bitter well at Mara where Moses had removed the foul taste, finding the Elim Valley where, quote, there are twelve wells and sixty-two date-bearing palm trees where Moses and the children of Israel camped. From this valley to Mount Sinai, it was only one day's travel to the place where Moses saw God speak to him in the burning bush, where an abbey of devout Greeks and Arabs lived on dates, roots, and herbs, behind good walls and iron gates that kept back the wild animals of the desert. Where at the church of St. Catherine, birds flocked bearing olive branches, and the oil produced from this miraculous harvest was used for food and to light their lamps. Across the desert, Mandeville's pilgrims went, making sure to bring all necessary provisions on their camels, the text being clear that horses would never manage it. Thirteen days it took, bringing them to Beersheba, to Bethlehem, and at last to Jerusalem, the city to which Mandeville describes many ways, even an especially short one for those with no funding or companions. That's the city we'll be visiting today. 
Hello and welcome. My name is Devin, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that follows medieval history through the travelers that crossed it, sometimes on very verifiably real journeys, sometimes somewhat less so. At this point in the episode, I draw your attention to patreon.com forward slash human circus, where you can support the podcast and its host, and to make sure both continue to thrive and or eat, and where you can access ad-free and or bonus listening, all for the price of a coffee a month. And that can be a $1 cup of coffee, or it can be something a little fancier, or a slice of pie maybe to go with it. Both are available and both are very much appreciated. And speaking of appreciation, I want to send out my gratitude to the new Patreon supporter, Christina. Thank you very much. And now, the story. Today, it's back to the stories of John Mandeville, tales tall, taken, and otherwise. And as I'm making such heavy use of his translation and footnotes, I'd like to again point out that the text I'm working from here is by Anthony Bale, who has also in recent years translated the book of Marjorie Kemp, someone else I'll probably be getting to at some point soon. Last episode, we walked with our infamously unreliable guide right up to the gates of Jerusalem, but we did not enter the city. Today, we go in, and we go on to see the surrounding sights. I mentioned last episode that we'd be following Mandeville further in his armchair travels to Egypt and elsewhere. But we're actually really going to linger here, around the city of Jerusalem. Egypt, we'll have to wait for next time. We'll not be getting into those taller tales with this episode. Today, we are 14th century pilgrims. We go, just as pilgrims had gone for a thousand years, holding sacred the holy sites, even as a competing intellectual strain within Christianity, from Gregory of Nyssa to Bernard of Clairvaux had warned against placing too much value upon them, against fixating too much on earthly Jerusalem, when celestial Jerusalem was ever within reach. Not that this prevented Bernard from preaching crusade. Pilgrims sought mystical experiences, blessings and cures. They asked after saintly or godly intervention, or fulfilled their vows for that which had already been given. They looked to be pardoned for their sins, and by the time of the 12th century, could be called upon to complete a pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem to atone for mortal sin. And now, let's go see the Holy City, situated there among the hills. It was, Mandeville tells us, first called Jebus, and then, until David was king, Salem. It's David who's credited with combining the two in Jebusalem and Solomon with the more familiar Jerusalem. The etymology is not an invention of the text. It can be found in a number of its known sources. Our guide first locates the city geographically, with Egypt, Arabia, Syria, and the Mediterranean at its compass points, and near to the cities of Hebron, Jericho, Beersheba, Ascalon, Jaffa, Bethlehem, and the biblical Ramatha and Ephraim. He locates it within its recent Christian past, saying simply that there used to be a patriarch in Jerusalem, and there were archbishops and bishops throughout the country. 
He extends this thought, saying that the province had been held by many nations, such as Jews, Canaanites, Assyrians, Persians, Medes, and Macedonians, Greeks, Romans, Christians, Saracens, Barbarians, Turks, Tartars, and many other peoples. For, quote, Christ does not desire that it should be in the hands of traitors and sinners, whether they are Christian or not. So, Christians sometimes explain to themselves, and others, the failure to hold the Holy Land. Yet, the text continues, the sinful ones have held that land in their hands for more than 150 years, ever since Saladin had taken it, in other words. Just as these regions were lost, so shall they be won again, Mandeville says, with perhaps undue optimism. Our guide then goes on to speak of what lies within the city's walls, of its sites and buildings. And this is not a rundown of palaces and military might. This is a pilgrim's account of the holy places, of which there were, of course, no shortage. We can begin, Mandeville tells us, as people did, with their first pilgrimage to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre once north of the city walls, but now solidly within them. It is a, quote, handsome circular church, finely roofed with lead and with an open ceiling. On the west side is an attractive and sturdy bell tower, and in the middle of the church is a tabernacle like a little house, beautifully crafted in the manner of a semicircle and richly decorated with gold, azure, and other colors. The tabernacle is eight feet long and five feet wide and eleven feet high, and to the right is the sepulchre of our Lord. The place so described sits on the site of a Roman temple, where the church ordered built by Constantine was consecrated in 335, but it had, to say the least, been through a bit since then. There had been the burning in early 7th century Sassanid Jerusalem, total destruction in early 11th century Fatimid, and repeated rounds of earthquakes and fires in between. The structure we're encountering in Mandeville was roughly that which would last for centuries after, the result of a 12th century rebuild that would then be periodically renovated or updated as required. To jump forward a little bit, this is where a mid-18th century agreement between the different Christian communities making use of the church would seek to prevent inter-order disputes. The resulting status quo barred any of the orders from making alterations without the permission of the others, but it would also result in the delightfully absurd immovable ladder, an item which, because it could not be moved by any one of the orders, sits there beneath the window, both in recent color photos and also in a 1728 engraving. And in our text, there is some acknowledgement of Christian diversity at the church at this time, a reference to a chapel where priests sing, though not, quote, according to our right, but according to their own. Mandeville writes of a place where the sepulchre itself had needed to be walled away because visitors had been prone to break off stone in pieces or even dust to be taken home, where there were no windows, only oil lamps, and where the lamp in front of the sepulchre was known to extinguish itself on Good Friday and then light itself again on Easter Sunday, and the empty tomb with its miraculous lamp was not alone in affecting the church's visitors. 
There in its walls, pilgrims could contemplate the final stations of the cross made powerfully real before their eyes. They could see the pillar where Christ was stripped and scourged. They could see Calvary, where he was set upon the cross and the white rock where the cross was then set, the white contrasting with the red of its blood. They could see the place on the ground where Joseph of Arimathea laid his body. There was the cleft in the rock where Adam's head was said to have been unearthed after Noah's flood. There was the site of Abraham's sacrifice. There were the four stone columns, ever dripping with water, and said to weep for Christ's death. For those pilgrims willing and able to pay for the privilege, there was the possibility of being locked inside till morning to contemplate the sepulchre in seclusion. One 15th century lord would leave a record of just such an experience, and of being made, after mass the next morning, knight of the chivalric order of the Holy Sepulchre. Strengthening the site's connection with biblical history, a cross, recognized as the true one, had been found. And the four nails, one of which Emperor Constantine was said to have had made into a bridle for his horse. For, quote, by the power of this bridle, he overcame his enemies and won all these lands. Representing more recent history were the bodies of the kings of the kingdom of Jerusalem, which lay there before the altar, some of them familiar to us from the Salah Adin series. Out on the street outside the church, a Mandeville-guided visitor might walk the 200 paces to the hospital of St. John. The home of the Knights Hospitaller, where both pilgrims and the sick were received and cared for, at which Benjamin of Tudela estimated that around 400 brother knights lived in 1170, and the place which John of Würzburg described in 1165 like this, quote, A beautiful church built in honor of St. John the Baptist, to which is annexed a hospital, in which are gathered in various rooms a huge number of sick people, both men and women, who are cared for and refreshed daily at very great expense. I learned from the servants themselves, speaking on the subject, that their number during that time amounted to 2,000, of whom more than 50 are sometimes carried out dead during the course of a day and a night, while more are newly arriving all the time. The hospital, in addition, gave out bread beyond knowing to those who came door to door, and it maintained distributed through its castles, many persons instructed in every kind of soldiery. From the Holy Sepulchre, you might instead leave and walk 160 paces to the temple, to THE temple, a very beautiful building, completely circular and exceptionally tall, and roofed with lead and handsomely paved with white marble. It was barred in Mandeville's time to Jews and Christians, but he claims to have gone where he wished, courtesy of a letter of introduction, bearing the Sultan's seal. So it was that you, like he, could pass through one of its four entrances, finally turned in Cypresswood, see its marble pillars, its holy of holies. You were standing, Mandeville wished to make clear, not in the temple that Solomon built, not in the one that was ordered destroyed by Roman Emperor Vespasian's son, Titus. Not the one which Emperor Julian, the apostate, ordered constructed, and which soon fell in an earthquake. 
but rather that ordered rebuilt by Hadrian. It was on this site that Jacob slept upon a rock and saw the angels passing up and down the ladder, where David prayed for mercy after murdering Uriah, where Christ himself sat. It was from this site that the Ark of God was taken to Rome by Titus. And a little way off was another temple, the Temple of the Knights Templar. There was a church dedicated to Mary's mother, before which a great tree had begun to grow on the night she had been conceived. There was the house of King Herod the Great, Jewish client king of the Roman provinces, and doer, in these and other accounts, of wicked deeds both great and small. There, outside the city and beyond Mount Zion, was the field of blood, said to have been bought with Judas's thirty pieces of silver. There were so many sites, saints, and holy spots to confront the pilgrim with the places past, in both biblical and slightly more recent history. And some two miles to the north, Mandeville tells us, was Mount Joy, from which many of those pilgrims would first catch sight of the destination they had labored so hard to attain. The journey was not easy on the body, and for those who reached Mount Joy and looked upon their desired goal, that place earned its name. For those who could not undertake it themselves, they might instead contemplate the holy places as we are, through a text such as Mandeville's. After this short break, we'll look beyond the site and city, and we'll expand our little regional tour in just a moment. Let's move out now from the holy city. We're zooming out until we see Gethsemane, where Christ was kissed by Judas, parted with his disciples, and then was arrested. Mandeville shows us the tomb of King Jehoshaphat. He shows us Mount Olivet, with its many olives, its view over the valley of that king, and down into the streets of Jerusalem itself. And on the slope towards the city, the footprint of Christ, his last before ascending into the sky. That print in its church had been the subject of veneration since the 7th century, but had been abandoned in 1187, and by 1212, the church was a mosque, and the footprint taken to Al-Aqsa. However, by the time Mandeville was supposed to have made his excursion, there were two such footprints again being visited by pilgrims, and a church again too. The Mandeville text continues its remembrances. Here, there once was an abbey, but now a church. There is a chapel where once Christ sat and spoke, saying as in Matthew, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And near that, the church and burial place of Mary the Egyptian, the fourth century figure who had, after a pretty eventful early life, crossed the Jordan and retired to the desert with only three loaves of bread, there to live an ascetic life and die a miracle-laden death. Further east from that church was the chapel of Bethany. That was where Simon the leper had lived and lent aid to Christ before being baptized as Julian, before becoming a bishop, and then a patron saint of hospitality. That was also where Lazarus was from, with his sisters Mary and Martha, 
and where he was raised from the dead in the Gospel of John, where Mary Magdalene was forgiven, where Doubting Thomas had his Marian vision, and where Christ sat upon a stone and preached, where he said to sit again on the Day of Judgment. You might travel from Bethany to Jericho, with its ancient wall, once a decent city, Mandeville says, but now desolate and all but deserted. Or you might travel to the River Jordan, blind men on the way, sitting in the road crying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. To the east, you'd see the great mountain where Abraham spent a time, where Christ spent his forty days, and where live, quote, a kind of Christian men, called Georgians, at what must have been the hermitage of quarantine. The word I only now realize refers to the aforementioned forty days, and I accept that I might be all alone in my sense of discovery there. When you reach the Jordan, which the people of Israel passed through without getting wet, where Christ was baptized, and where the Holy Ghost came down as a dove, you find it neither great nor broad, but abundant in fish, flowing from Mount Lebanon, and known by Mandeville and his medieval sources, to take its name from the two springs, Jor and Dan, which were its source. On one side is Mount Gilboa, and a pleasant plain. On the other, the mountains of Lebanon, that run in full to the desert of the Pharaoh, and split Syria from Phoenicia. There are cedar trees bearing fruit the size of a human head. There is the plain on which Job's temple sits. And there is the Dead Sea, into which the Jordan flows. If you've been to the Dead Sea, you'll have noticed first the simple impossibility of sinking. You'd heard that that would be the case, but to experience it is still somehow a thing of childlike wonderment. You might have noticed the way that something in the water adheres to your skin, forming a kind of jelly that must be rinsed off immediately when you get out. You'll definitely have noticed the burning, every scrape and abrasion you didn't know you'd picked up, suddenly aching in the salts. This was not water you wanted anywhere near your eyes. Mandeville puts it slightly differently. It's called the Dead Sea, he says, because it doesn't flow. And contrary to the name, neither man nor living beast is able to die in it. And that has often been tested. They throw men in who have been condemned to death, and it spits them out again. A piece of iron floats back up, but a feather sinks down. It is, he says, against nature and then compares it to those cities punished for being likewise against nature, Sodom, Gomorrah, and others. Some called this sea Devil's River, some Stinking River, because, he helpfully clarifies, the water stank, and some Lake Al-Saled, an interesting name that places the Arabic Al before a Middle English word meaning mire. Overall, he makes it all sound pretty unpleasant. There is a brief reprieve when some attractively colored fruits are mentioned. But then we read that though they seem ripe, when one splits them or cuts them open, one finds nothing but cinders and ashes. And also that this is a token of God's vengeance, through which those cities against nature had been burned with hellfire. Everything here is put in terms of its distance from Jerusalem, that city at the center, like in the TNO maps of earlier centuries, 
the gracious city of Damascus, that is full of excellent goods and wares, was, for example, five days from Jerusalem. And near Damascus was Mount Seir, city of many physicians, and what Mandeville refers to as Notre Dame de Godmarché, the Our Lady of Sidnea Monastery, which you can still visit today, and where our guide describes a painted panel that is known to miraculously become flesh and blood. It does not now do so very often, but it does produce oil, like that of an olive, and this oil has many healing properties. Sometimes, the distance is in terms of time. There is a strong sense that things here are not as they once were. So much of it is like Nazareth, which, quote, used to be a huge city, but is now just a little town, and it has no walls. There used to be a grand church there, but now there is just a little booth to receive the pilgrim's offerings. In Shechem's fertile valley, where Christ spoke to the Samaritan, there used to be a church, but it was knocked down. And Sebastia, where the twelve tribes of Israel had come from, was not so big as it once was. So much had fallen away. Sebastia had been where St. John the Baptist had been buried his remains having been translated there and entombed. But Emperor Julian the Apostate had had his bones removed and burnt. Only the one finger, the one with which John had gestured, behold, the Lamb of God, had failed to burn, taken, according to Mandeville, to the mountains to be revered, and soon multiplying, found as relics across the medieval world. And of course, his head had also survived, that, Mandeville says, had been taken by Emperor Theodosius, he of the Theodosian walls, to Constantinople, wrapped in bloodied cloth. Now it was split in half, it's not clear whether vertically or horizontally, the one part still in that city, and the other in Rome at St. Sylvester. Another head of the Baptist was said to be at Amiens, though which was the true one, Mandeville admits he knows not. But, he says, God knows. So, we have saints, miracles, history both biblical and otherwise, and we have the odd other intriguing anecdote. We have, for example, the sands near Acre that people come for from far and wide in order to make fine glassworks that never empty out no matter how much has been taken, and that swirl from strong winds that turn metal that touches them into glass and glass objects that had been made of them back into sand. And of course, we have people, not just the biblical figures scattered through this section of the text, not just the historical ones from Roman through Mamluk that had impacted the region, but also the people who still lived there. I briefly mentioned last episode the part in which Mandeville covers Greek Christianity, noting the differences from and for his Latinate audience. As with that, there seems to be an openness to other Christianities, for devout men who lead a chaste life and live in great abstinence and great penance, even if their practices or beliefs do differ from Mandeville's own. We read about the Samaritans in their red linen head wraps who, quote, believe in the Bible by the letter, but whose law is different from Christian law, Saracen law, Jewish law, and pagan law. We read that, quote, 
You should also be aware that in many places, Christians live amongst the Saracens, paying tribute to them. They have various customs, and there are many different kinds of monks. And though they are all Christians and have a range of laws, yet they all really believe in God the Father, and in the Son, and in the Holy Ghost. These people, Mandeville tells us, are the Jacobites. They know the Bible and the Psalter well, but they cite it in their own language, and not in Latin. And they confess not to man, but only to God, for only one who knows the nature of the sickness may give good medicine to the ill. They don't consider it worthwhile to confess their sin to one who doesn't understand its nature. Now the information on these people is not always correct. We read here that they are called Jacobites because they were converted by St. James, when actually they take their name from the 6th century bishop of Edessa, Jacob Baradeus, but the depiction seems fairly sympathetic, and the Greeks, Samaritans, and Jacobites are not alone. Quote, there is another people, and they are called Syrians. They keep the Greek faith, and they have long beards. There are other people who are called Georgians, who were converted by St. George. They worship the saints in heaven more than others do, and they have shaved tonsures. The clerics have round tonsures, and the laymen have square. They also keep the Greek faith. There are other men called girdling Christians because they wear girdles down below. There are also some others called Nestorians, some called Arians, some called Nubians, some called Gregorians, some called Indians, who come from the land of Prester John. Each of these has some of the articles of our faith, but each one varies somewhat from the others. It would be too much to describe the differences between them. It's really a paragraph that goes places, stretching its legs from Syria all the way to the lands of Prester John. Somewhere we'll be going in a few episodes. But lest I give the impression that the Mandeville author fully endorses Christianity in all its forms with equality, I should note that he rounds out his description of the Jacobites with the words, however, they still want for the articles of our faith. But the text is, perhaps surprisingly, open, accepting, tolerant even, it has sometimes been said. But why? Why, when compared with his sources, was this writer's treatment of others so generous, so keen to avoid demonization? And was this generosity universal? It's a topic that we're going to return to later in the series. For now, we'll finish here today. Next episode, we'll get to Egypt, and we'll see what else. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for putting up with my head cold delivery. If you're on the Friars feed on Patreon, keep listening for a little pilgrimage story starring none other than Charlemagne himself. If not, I'll talk to you next time. Human Circus will return.
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.